Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Sufism is a difficult topic to define in short terms. It is often referred to as Islamic mysticism, and while I do believe that this can be a good place to start, it is of course a simplified and sometimes even misleading way to talk about this tradition. This is for various reasons, only one of which is the fact that it often lumps together various different quote-unquote mystical movements in the early history of Islam. Indeed, Andalusia, or Al-Andalus, was a hotbed for this stuff in the Middle Ages, producing some of the greatest mystics in history. But while this tradition and these mystics would eventually become assimilated as a part of the wider category of Sufism later on, in the earlier centuries it was not that simple. In fact, this uh, mystical tradition was in fact a parallel tradition to the more classical Sufism of the East, the Islamic East, and actually had some really unique and fascinating features of its own. So let's explore the origins of Islamic mysticism slash kind of Sufism in the lands of Andalusia. For many centuries, Al-Andalus, which is the southern parts of the Iberian Peninsula, was one of the cultural centers of the Islamic world, and the world generally. Ruled by various dynasties and empires like the Umayyads, the Almoravids, and the Almohads, it was a place of a lot of activity on a number of fronts. In the great cities like Cordoba and Seville, scholarship flourished and philosophers like Ibn Tufayl, Ibn Rushd, and Ibn Hazm, among others, could produce their many influential works. And in terms of what we call mysticism, the same was true. We've talked at length previously about some of the great Sufis and mystics who came from Andalusia, people like Ibn Arabi, Ashushtari, Ibn Sabain, Abu Madian, and others, most of whom would have a massive impact on the world of Sufism. And that's precisely the point, the word Sufism. 
because indeed there were parallel mystical traditions that developed in different parts of the Islamic world, not all of which can necessarily be called Sufism without at least further nuancing. They were all interconnected in many ways, of course, but still. When we talk about Western Sufism, represented by people like Ibn Arabi, we often talk about how it's distinct from Sufism further east. Quote-unquote Western Sufism tends to be more speculative and more metaphysically interested, while Eastern Sufism is more focused on psychology and the internal spiritual wayfaring of the individual mystic. And there is a reason for this, namely that there was a unique mystical tradition that had developed in Al-Andalus that was distinct from the Sufism of the East. Indeed, while later Muslim Sufi writers would write about earlier mystics of the West as Sufis in order to sort of strengthen the sense that they all belong to the same tradition, this wasn't always the case. In earlier times, before figures like Ibn Arabi or Ibn Sabain that somehow represented both traditions, Sufism, or Sufis, was a term primarily associated with the mystics of the central Islamic lands, primarily in and around Baghdad, or modern Iraq. Tasawwuf, which is the Arabic term that we often translate as Sufism, was the tradition associated with mystics like Junaid in Baghdad, Al-Muhasibi, Ma'ruf al-Karhi, and written about in the early Sufi works like Qushayri's Epistle, the Kitab al-Lumah by Abu Nasir al-Saraj, and the Qut al-Qulub by Abu Talib al-Makki. This was a tradition concerned with ethics and renunciant practices that would help the mystic travel on the spiritual path through different stations or maqams in order to reach intimacy and union with God. And these Sufis had a particular terminology and vocabulary that they became associated with, concepts and terms like ma'arifa, which means a kind of Gnostic intuitive knowledge or mystical knowledge, terms like fana, which is annihilation or extinction in God, this vocabulary and these terms were very much associated with the Sufis, right, in, in Baghdad and in the surrounding areas, which had a distinct kind of flavor. At the same time, there were other mystical developments further east in what is today Iran or Persia in places like Nishapur, for example, the Malamati uh, movement, um, people like Abu Yazid al-Bistami. These were not necessarily considered Sufis in the early period. From the time that these early works of Sufism was written, the Eastern Sufism, of course, had an influence on the West as well. And by, by West, I mean places like Western North Africa, the Maghreb, as well as Al-Andalus or Andalusia. Some of the great Sufi works spread and were read in Andalusia, and people who traveled to the East and studied under Sufis would of course bring that knowledge back with them, which led to the gradual development of a renunciation or renunciate tradition in this region too. But at around the same time, in other words, in the earliest periods of the Islamic civilization, there also developed a parallel mystical tradition here in the West, one that took influence both from the Qur'an and Hadith, but also from the philosophy of Neoplatonism and the speculation of groups like the Ikhwan al-Safa. The origins of this movement, and of mysticism in Andalusia in general, is often traced to the fascinating 9th to 10th century mystic philosopher Ibn Masarra. His full name was Muhammad ibn Abdullah ibn Masarra al-Jabali, and he was born in the city of Cordoba around the year 883. Having studied the standard religious sciences and the Maliki school of Islamic law, ibn Masarra eventually decided to travel eastward. He spent some time in Qairawan in modern Tunisia, where he deepened his studies of Maliki law, and then he made his way to Mecca, the holiest city in Islam. It is thought that he encountered the Sufis here, and might have studied under the eminent mystic Abu Sa'id ibn al-Arabi. 
Some scholars also suggest that he might have encountered the Ikhwan safa or Brethren of Purity, during his travels, whose epistles might have influenced his Neoplatonic philosophical bent. After his travels and explorations in the East, Ibn Masarra eventually made his way back to Al-Andalus and Cordoba, where he started teaching and became famous as an ascetic and mystical guide. A group of students, later referred to by Ibn Hazm as the Masariya, gathered around him, and it is said that Ibn Masarra and his followers would retreat to the mountains surrounding Cordoba, where they spent most of their time in religious and spiritual practice. It is for this reason that he's also called Al-Jabali, which can roughly be translated to something like the mountain dweller, because he spent most of his time up in the mountains outside of the city. Already during his life, Ibn Masarra and the Masarians became controversial among the ruling elites and many of the Maliki jurists in the region. He was often accused of holding unconventional ideas, such as, for example, teaching that it was possible for people to attain prophecy, which is most likely a simplification or misrepresentation, as well as other supposed theological positions. What everyone agreed on was that Ibn Masarra had a vast knowledge in various fields, and he was known for speaking very eloquently and for having a sharp mind, as well as for his rigorous ascetic lifestyle. He passed away in the year 931 in his mountain retreats outside of Cordoba. But he had left behind not only a group of disciples, but also a collection of writings. The two primary ones that have survived are the Kitab Khawas al-Huruf, the Book of the Properties of Letters, and the Risalat al-Ittibar, the Epistle on Contemplation. And the latter work is especially important for understanding his mystical philosophical ideas. Because at the center of Ibn Masada's thought is the concept of Ittibar, meaning contemplation. The word is connected to the term Ibra, which means crossing over from this world to the other world. In the Risalat al-Ittibar, Ibn Masada describes how we can cross over from the mundane world to the divine one. We can ascend to a divine experience through the practice of contemplation, of Ittibar. This can be done through ascending levels of contemplation in a very Neoplatonic way, where one contemplates and meditates on nature itself, the beauty of the world around us. The world is, after all, often described as the cosmic Qur'an, as a sacred scripture that can be read by those with eyes to see properly. Ibn Masada writes, quote, Then God, great and glorious, made all that he created, heaven and earth, to be signs indicating him, expressing his lordship and his beautiful attributes. The world in its entirety is therefore a book whose letters are his speech. Those who seek to behold, read them by the light of true thinking, according to their perception and the scope of their contemplation, while the eyes of their hearts are turned around the manifest and hidden marvels. Starting with contemplation of nature, we then ascend in rising levels of contemplation until we reach the divine itself. Quote, the world then, with all its creatures and signs, is a ladder by which those who contemplate ascend to the great signs of God on high. He who climbs must climb from the lower to the higher. They climb by means of the intellects, who ascend from their lowly station to the point where they reach the highest signs described by the prophets. Like climbing a ladder, we start from the physical world of nature and ascend in a very Neoplatonic way, through the planetary spheres, then to the soul and then the intellect, until we reach contemplation of God as the source of all things within ourselves. Quote, Thereupon you will find your Lord and Creator, you will meet Him in yourself, and you will see Him with your inner vision. 
At this point, the wayfarer will realize and confirm the truths that the prophets brought, to see for themselves the truth of the divine, the world, and of revelation. These ideas became very influential in the region, and we can see clear traces of them in the later mystics like Ibn Arabi and Ibn Saba'in. But shortly after the death of Ibn Masarra, his ideas became a point of controversy. Many caliphs and Maliki jurists in the region saw them as heretical, they were staunchly opposed to his ideas, they saw him as a kind of heretic, and so they even had his writings burned. Despite this, the movement survived for centuries among mystics who were inspired by his ideas. Because of the focus on Ektibar, this group of mystics in the lineage of Ibn Masarra came to be called the Al-Mu'tabirun, the contemplators, and was a mystical tradition that developed in parallel with the regular renunciant tradition in the region and with quote-unquote Sufism in the East. Even centuries later, in the 12th century, we see significant figures and mystics clearly influenced by Ibn Masarra, thus being part of the Mu'tabirun. Scholars today often talk about the so-called school of Almeria, because it seems that the Masarian teachings and the Al-Mut'abirun were especially prominent in that coastal region in southern Spain. Indeed, in this very eventful 12th century, the Mu'tabirun were represented by fascinating figures like Ibn al-Arif and Ibn Barajan, who would have a massive influence on the greatest master Ibn Arabi, especially Ibn al-Arif. At this point, you can probably already start to see the direct connections here and connect some of the dots between these different figures and traditions, right? A more prolific writer, though, and arguably the most influential of the Mu'tabirun at this time, was Ibn Barajan. He was a great mystic and scholar from the city of Seville, known then in Arabic as Ishbilia. He was not only clearly educated in the basics of the religion, including things like theology and Islamic law, but also deeply involved in mysticism. He was aware of the teachings of the so-called Sufis, but clearly considered them a parallel tradition, a different tradition from his own in some way, and more so represented the Masarian teachings of the Mu'tabirun. At the same time, it's also clear that his spiritual practices included things like dhikr, a meditation technique where one repeats God's names or the proclamation of faith, and khalwa, a spiritual retreat where one shuts oneself off from the rest of the world for a period of time to focus on meditation and prayer both of which are practices strongly associated with Sufism in particular. So, as you can see, the relationship between these terms and concepts are pretty complicated. But Ibn Barajan was also something of a philosopher, even though he would never use that term himself. He studied deeply topics like geometry, arithmetic, as well as other examples of what was called at the time the science of the ancients, the ulum al-awail, such as mathematics, astronomy, medicine, alchemy, and logic. Indeed, Ibn Barajan seems to have criticized many of his contemporary mystics and renunciants in Seville for their, in his opinion, excessive asceticism and anti-intellectualism. Ibn Barajan sought to find a balance between mystical unveiling and intellectual pursuits, although at the same time he was also highly critical of the philosophers. The mysticism that he practiced, aside from the more Sufi-related practices like dhikr, was one more strongly connected to the Mu'tabirun and Ibn Masada's ideas of contemplation, or ittibar. To live this life to the fullest, Ibn Barajan eventually moved from the city to the countryside just west of Seville. Here, he lived the life of a farmer, basically, while also being a respected spiritual teacher to a large group of disciples. 
He moved to the countryside in order to be closer to nature, where he could practice ittibar by meditating on nature and witnessing the divine traces and the truth that was manifested in it. Just like Ibn Masarra, Ibn Barajan believed that one could ascend to the divine through this gradual contemplation of God's signs and traces, his revelation. God reveals himself through what he creates, and he does so in different modes. All of the world is a single unity, where there is a connection between the different modes of revelation, a correspondence between the different kinds of Qur'ans. Creation itself, the universe as a whole, is a revelation where God shows himself, what Ibn Barajan refers to as the cosmic Qur'an, al-Qur'an al-Takwini, in contrast to the written Qur'an, al-Qur'an al-Tadwini, which is the book of the Qur'an as we know it, the sacred scripture of Islam revealed to Muhammad. These two Qur'ans correspond to each other. They both contain the entirety of creation in some way. As Ibn Barajan himself says, quote, Everything in the world is mentioned and alluded to in the Qur'an, and vice versa. And thirdly, there is the human being itself, the constitution of the human self and soul, which also contains the whole of Revelation. It is the microcosm to the macrocosm of the universe, and so it's the third Qur'an. So Ibn Barajan is primarily concerned with the practice of ittibar, contemplating God through his science and traces, the way that God reveals himself through the three modes of revelation, nature, the written Qur'an, and the human self. All these three are to be studied and meditated upon to reach the divine, just like how Ibn Masarra described the ascent on the ladder to God. What is so interesting about Ibn Barajan, aside from just that his ideas are interesting in themselves, is also that we see in his ideas many, many precursors to the ideas of later great figures like Ibn Arabi. As you can see, the ideas of someone like Ibn Barajan and his predecessors like Ibn Masarra have clear metaphysical and cosmological aspects. They try to map out, at least to some degree, the suprasensible realities and talks about how God creates the universe as we know it. This, it has a lot of this cosmology and these metaphysics which are not present to the same degree in the tradition that we call Sufism, at least in the early centuries. And in this metaphysical scheme, he introduces some fascinating ideas that probably influenced the great mystics that followed. For example, one of the central features of his cosmology is the concept of the universal servant, al-abd al-kulli. This is the first thing that God creates, a kind of intermediary between God and creation where everything is contained in a single unity before it is refracted into the actual world of multiplicity. It is neither God nor creation, but simultaneously both God and creation in some way. This is obviously similar and probably related to the Neoplatonic idea of the nous, or intellect in some ways. And even more significantly, it strongly reminds us of Ibn Arabi's ideas of insan al-kamil, the perfect man, as well as the reality of realities, the haqiqat al-haqaiq. Furthermore, Ibn Barajan talks about something he calls the reality upon which the heavens and the earth are created, which is a name for the totality of God's presence and creation. All of creation, that which is other than God, Allah, are the traces and signs of God, determined by his names and attributes. So, just like Ibn Arabi later, the world is the manifestation of God's beautiful names and attributes, and the sum total of those traces and presences is this reality which he refers to. Quote, The reality upon which the heavens and the earth are created is to the existent things like a point is to a line. 
it begins with it and is connected through it and ends with it. This also we find a very similar concept in Ibn Arabi, and he even basically uses this very phrase himself, although he shortens it to the reality upon which creation is created. Al-Haqq al-Makhluq bihi al-Khalq. There are other doctrines, such as Ibn Barajan's discussion of al-wujud al-mithali, imaginal existence, that definitely seems to be a precursor to Ibn Arabi's ideas of the alam al-khayal, the imaginal realm. And both Ibn Masarra and Ibn Barajan's interest in the powers and significance of the Arabic letters as building blocks of the universe is inherited by the great sheikh as well, commonly known as the uh, science of letters, the ilm al-huruf. In short, there are numerous ways in which we can see how mystics of the Mu'tabirun had a major influence of the theoretical metaphysics of the great 13th century Sufis, like Ibn Arabi. And that's what's so fascinating about this time period, that we see the confluence of different mystical traditions. We have seen that Al-Andalus had developed a unique and particular kind of mysticism, associated with the thought of Ibn Masarra and the Mu'attabirun, and represented later on by people like Ibn Barajan and Ibn al-Arif, as well as a local renunciate tradition focused on self-inquiry and ethical principles such as charity and taking care of the less fortunate. This renunciate tradition is partly a sort of homegrown movement, but also of course influenced by writings and ideas of the Sufis further east, which after all had made its way to places like Al-Andalus, particularly uh, writings like uh, those by Al-Muhasibi, which focus very much on self-inquiry, right? Self-inquiring about the, the state of the soul, uh, which was a very uh, prominent aspect of this renunciate tradition in Seville and other places in Spain. But it's in the late 12th century that we also see the emergence of a proper self-conscious Western or Maghrebi Sufism. This development is primarily associated with the figure Abu Madian, who was also originally from the Andalusian city of Seville, but spent most of his career in the Maghreb, in cities like Fez in Morocco. By this time, Sufi works from the East like Al-Ghazali's Ahiya al-Lumuddin and the Risala of Al-Qushayri had reached the Maghrib and Abu Madian studied these works under teachers like Ibn Hirzihim in Fez. Eventually, he became a great Sufi master himself who gathered many followers across Western North Africa. Before he died in the city of Tilimsan, Algeria in 1198, he had basically brought Sufism to the West, while also infusing it with particular local features and traditions. A true Western Sufism was thus born, and Abu Madian is one of the most revered and important mystics in history. It was in his footsteps that figures like Abu Hassan al-Shadali followed shortly thereafter and started the Shadali Sufi order, which became dominant in the region ever since then. Lastly, we might even be able to consider another movement that was emerging in the so-called Wadi Riqut, the Wikot Valley in the region of Murcia in western Andalusia. Here, another mystical development was taking place with ideas that were much more radically monistic and was represented by figures like Abu Abdullah al-Shudi, Ibn al-Mara'a, and Ibn Dahaq, and would be primarily inherited later on by Ibn Sabain and al-Shushtari. So as you can see, once we get to the 13th century, there is a whole lot of activity going on. The local mystical tradition of the Al-Mu'tabirun, the renunciant tradition centered in Seville, and the later emergence of a self-conscious Sufism proper in the region through figures like Abu Madian, and arguably even the monistic adjacent ideas in the Abricot Valley, if that can be considered a movement of its own. And this is the environment in which the great figures of that age grew up. Ibn Arabi, Ibn Sabain, Ashushtari, Afif Adin Tilimsani, they lived in a place and time where all of these mystical movements and tendencies intermingled. 
And that is what is so significant about them. What someone like Ibn Arabi did was to take all of that and in some way harmonize them, to bring them together. We see clear influences in Ibn Arabi's writings from the ideas of Ibn Masarra and Ibn Barajan, but also the renunciant practices of Ibn Mujahid and the Sufism of Abu Madian. He and many of his contemporaries represented all of these tendencies simultaneously. Now, it should be remembered, as always, that the lines between these traditions aren't clear. I don't mean to paint a picture where all of these are separate schools completely independent of each other, because that is far from the truth. It is a lot messier than that, but we can still get an idea of the different kinds of ideas and practices that were in dialogue at the time. When Ibn Arabi left for the East in the early years of the 13th century, he was taking all of this with him. In a way, he and his contemporaries were the culmination of centuries of developments in the region, which they brought together and took with them to the East, where their ideas would become very influential. Eventually, these unique ideas and teachings associated with the Islamic West became assimilated into and sometimes formed core aspects of the broader category of Sufism for the rest of history. Usually, when we talk about people like Ibn Arabi or Ibn Sabain, we call them Sufis. And arguably, this isn't entirely wrong. They definitely represented Sufism in some ways. Even if we define that term more narrowly, they incorporated that aspect of Islamic spirituality as part of their teachings. That cannot, cannot be denied. But they also represented other mystical traditions. Ones that were strongly related, of course, but still. Indeed, when we read the works by Ibn Arabi or Ashushtari, for example, they usually don't refer to themselves as Sufis but rather with words like muhakikun, verifiers, realizers, whereas arifun, knowers. Sufis, to them, was a particular group of mystics that they didn't always identify with personally, even if they saw them as part of the same larger tradition in some way. It's a complicated topic in many ways, and maybe only relevant if you are really interested in the semantics and things of that sort when it comes to these topics, but... It is true that from the time not too long after these figures like Ibn Arabi, all of this, the Sufism of the, the East, the Malamati tradition, the, all these mysticisms of the West, it all became referred to under the umbrella of Sufism, a way of talking about this that still is in use today. Ibn Arabi was a Sufi, Ibn Barajan was a Sufi, even Ibn Masarra was a Sufi. And while this isn't entirely wrong, they certainly belong to an interconnected mystical sphere and, and an environment in the larger Islamic world at the time, it's also true that things were a bit more complicated than that in the early centuries. We can arguably still talk about Sufism in the broad sense of encompassing all of this if we want to. We should also simultaneously be conscious of the diversity and complexity of Andalusian and Maghrebi forms of mysticism. And this is also an explanation why the Sufism of figures like Ibn Arabi, Ibn Sabain, and Ashushtari are seen as so quote-unquote philosophical compared to a lot of the earlier Sufism in the East because they not only inherited those renunciant practices and the vocabulary of the soul's journey to God, but also the much more cosmologically and metaphysically oriented ideas of the Mu'attabirun, and found ways to harmonize both in a beautiful and impressive way. This is one of those topics that I've studied a lot, and so for that reason, getting so much information and, and nuance um, together in a relatively short form can be pretty difficult, but I hope this has been an interesting introduction to the origins 
and development of mysticism and Sufism in the Islamic West, in places like Andalusia and the Maghrib. And through this discussion, we have also hopefully been able to see how the famous doctrines of people like Ibn Arabi developed in this region, which makes us better able to fully appreciate the massive achievements of the great Western mystics of the 13th century. Thank you, as always, to all of my patrons who support this channel. Uh, if anyone else wants to become a patron, it really is the best way to support this channel. I will leave links to that in the description. Look forward to more content on Sufism and related topics, and I will see you next time. <laughs>